0: This episode of our This Week in XR podcast is sponsored by Zapper. Zapper is one of the world's leading XR companies. Over the past 12 years, they've won numerous awards for memorable campaigns. They've democratized AR by making tools and SDKs that anyone can use. And they created Zapbox, the world's most affordable mixed reality headset. Most recently, Zapper worked with Unilever to create an enhanced QR code called Accessible QR which enables packaged goods to speak to the blind and partially sighted. If you're thinking XR, give the team at Zapper a call or visit zapper.com to see how they can help you on your XR journey. Good morning, everybody. It's July 28th, 2023. I'm Charlie Fink with Ted Shilwitz and Roni Abowitz, and it's This Week in XR. Good morning, guys. Good morning. How's everybody? doing great i love your northern california background there ted for for those of you in northern california um where's
1: the
2: wildfire
0: sorry just kidding (laughs) (laughs) so you know we've got a great guest today kind of a slow news week so it's good to have somebody like rob tersek joining us he's the author of the book vaporized about dematerialization and the mobile economy it was an international book of the year and frankfurt book of the year in 2016 um Rob has a consulting business where he advises uh, Fortune 500 companies and government agencies, and he's working on a project that involves all of that that we look forward to hearing about in about 10 minutes when we bring him in. But first, let's get to some of the news in kind of a summer week. I think the next few weeks are not going to bring us a lot of dramatic news, um, but there's still plenty to talk about. Corporate earnings this week, Uh, most of the tech companies exceeded uh, expectations. Uh, So it shows that the uh, rumored recession is really not a happening thing. Companies are doing well. Meta's advertising revenue has been going up, which, of course, is a bellwether for optimism about the economy and whether people are, are buying stuff. Because the first thing that goes during recession fears is... Uh, marketing and that, of course, hurt Meta badly uh, last uh, last quarter or last year, I should say. But it looks like uh, even though Reality Labs has lost a whopping twenty one billion dollars in counting, uh, Wall Street is going to forgive them as long as the profits keep rolling in.
2: Well, Charlie, uh, j- just just an interesting thing on that because you brought up Meta. Um, Matthew Ball responded to sort of. Something I posted this week, which was my my personal estimate of Meta spend since the acquisition of Oculus is between 40 to 60 billion all in on reality labs. His estimate's closer to 60, I think 58 something billion, uh, with some profit that made it, you know, like 51 billion. But like expenses close to 60 billion since the acquisition of Oculus. Just think about that. And and the scale so of competitors
0: them. that raise four five six billion can't keep up
2: or 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 like I'm just thinking about someone like Jerry from Tilt Five right I mean she's running on an infinitesimal but I think about what she's accomplished with one ten thousand of what Reality Labs has spent and something seems very inefficient about if you're going to put sixty billion into what they've done I I personally expect a lot more coming out the other end. Uh, that's a whole other topic, but it just seems yes, you can mask it with all the profitability on social media. They're great at it, but oh my god, sixty billion is a lot.
0: And, yeah, that's we, like don't a the, we don't That's we like a cure cancer it. kind of money.
2: It's 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 a GDP of multiple countries kind of money.
0: Yeah, that's that's.
1: So, so do you guys think you know from a from an existential standpoint? Because I certainly think about this a lot. Charlie and I, you talk about you and I talk about this a lot. Trying to will something into an existence that may organically not be its path to the future, trying to sort of create a commercialization of something that needs to gestate and find its own organic path and organic moments um, is very often a fool's errand. And even if you have as a business, the capital to drive it, it, it sometimes, you know, as much as we all benefit from that massive spend we get, you know, delivery of product at a very low cost. We have the ability to see some scale and some use case. Is it, is it the right trajectory? Do you guys think that it would be a much better trajectory to sort of be smaller and a little more exclusive and a little, you know, let, let it grow organically versus try and will it into existence with massive amounts
2: of capital and resources? Well, Ted, let, let, me, let me put it this way and, and sorry for jumping in, Charlie. Um, on the flip side of it, what what Meta is doing, and I know we did some of this at Magic Leap and Apple is doing, is we're doing what the government used to do. The massive funding to invent science and tech that actually moves entire fields forward, um, that's what they're doing. They're basically doing governmental level funding of an entire field. Um, and I think Mark's aware of that. Tim Cook probably not wanting to do as much, but Mark's going, the government's not going to do this. Right, the government stopped doing these big thing things a long time ago. So that's what they're doing. They're subsidizing basic fundamental tech development that later you build off of. And in some sense, like it's weird that that's been privatized and that the US government which should be creating that investment in building these infrastructures like it funded DARPA and the internet, it's not happening anymore. So I think it's that, right? And if they don't do it, it'll actually never happen. I, I think if something massive doesn't create that push and the, and the exhaust from that push ultimately could create hundreds of weird little startups, then it would just stay stagnant for more more decades. Anyway, that's my take. Well,
0: here's, a- here's, here's what I think. This idea of pure VR focused on gaming, which is what Meta has been doing, is not really working that well. And making a better device that continues to do that is not going to change everything. So I'm here on the record today to tell you that the Quest 3 is going to be a flop. Because it's, yeah. going to play the, it's going to play the same games. It's going to do the same things. Now, here's the play. They know that. It's, any idiot looking at this situation can see that. Uh, mm-hmm. these, are, these are very, very smart people. I think what they're betting on is trying to pivot and move this whole thing in the direction of, of pass-through mixed reality. It is the only path. It is the only reason to launch a new device. I mean, otherwise, this is like a niche game. I, I'm going to challenge that, Charlie.
2: I'm going to challenge that. And I'm going to say, imagine Epic with the massive user base that has on a great game platform, the Unreal Engine, came out with an $899 super slick 4K per eye VR system. And they know how to make games. And Tim Sweeney's a game design genius. That, I think, will work. The problem is Mark doesn't understand games. He is a social media <laughs> guru he does not understand video games not in the way that tim sweeney does the wrong people are building the wrong things that's what. okay
0: well that's that's a uh, i don't disagree with that but but i don't think i don't think again that the experience of playing fortnite in vr is necessarily better than playing it on t2d and other devices so i just i just think i the idea this is our problem right the idea of it is so right but in practice
2: it turns out that people don't like it that much but charlie i think because they're just still getting crap and what i mean by that is
0: okay so your contention is it's just not good enough yet
2: it's not no no solve the problems there are we could spend a whole episode going through the 20 problems that are still unsolved that people keep shipping in VR against those unsolved problems, solve them. I thought for 60 billion meta would have solved it. One easy one is you gotta get to four to six K per eye. Another easy one is you gotta get the weight down really low, like hundred grams or less. Like once you start hitting, by the way, those are two of like 20. Once you hit those, my big bet is then you'll wake things up. If you couple that to an amazing game studio and an amazing game engine like Unreal, that will open up the market, but put crappy games with partially developed unfinished problems and people go, blech, I don't want that. It's like uncooked food, send it back to the <laughs> chef. Um, when it, that's what's going on, they're, they're serving uncooked food.
0: Uncooked food, that's, yeah, so that's the theme of this episode.
2: Food. It's like the chicken's raw. It's, it's interesting, Rony,
0: because
1: I don't, I don't have that same feeling or same thesis about the trajectory of interactive entertainment in VR, I just, I think there are actually a lot of tremendously amazing and great things in VR. When you play it, which I tend to do and my friends tend to do, um, there are things that are way, way more engaging and better than sitting on a 2D screen and playing. That being said, I think it's still for a very small segmented early adopter market and trying to push that market into a bigger market is very often a fool's errand. It has to find its way organically into its moments and in some cases that business will never be as big as what those people that are driving it think that it will be um, and I think that's sort of the tactical error I, I think I mean I think there are a lot of tremendously amazing experiences in virtual reality today that are incredibly engaging incredibly well put together incredibly well formed um, but that doesn't mean that's mainstream entertainment right um, and it and it probably for many generations won't be mainstream entertainment, just like the early, early days of video games before it really hit its sweet spot wasn't mainstream entertainment. I mean, you had to have the gestation of the arcades and us as kids for years finding its way into the Pac-Man moment and the Galaga moment.
2: Too. I'm going to throw this out, Ted. I think 2033, if, if the right moves are made, we could have a billion AR devices, wearable AR devices and 100 to 200 million really good VR devices. I think it'll be that kind of ratio.
1: Yeah, and I guess that's where we we differ in thesis. I don't think it's and maybe I've always sort of watched this from my sort of future sort of path. I don't think it happens that fast. I think it there's there's a there's a lightning moment where things sort of shock into the world and everybody somehow has to have it. Uh, but I don't think we're there yet. And I don't think we're gonna be there for a long time. That doesn't mean that it's not a viable, interesting industry to be a part of and to track along with but you know it's it's a bit like exotic sports cars versus a toyota prius right like until you get to that moment there's a lot of exotic things that are incredible in virtual reality and mixed reality but i don't think it's mass market for quite some time i think and maybe that's kind of why apple is driving such a luxury product point for this first price you it's you know,
2: 2033 you, you don't see it in 10 years i just
1: i think it's well, 10 years is a good long time, right? So in a 10-year 2033. span.
2: 2033.
1: Yeah. But I don't think it happens. 10 in years
2: America. is the futurist sweet spot. I know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, it's, it's, about, it's about three to four generations out <clears throat> from the best of what we have today. Every generation being like two, two and a half years. I kind of think that's enough from what I know to get there on the device and the ecosystem if people do the right moves, which not all of them are
0: doing now. So Ted dropped off there. I don't know if he's still with us. He's, he's I'm just
1: actually trying to find a place that is not burning my uh my skin off in the sun here. So yeah, yeah and I'm and to top and to top
0: that off, me. you've got shitty Wi-Fi. So Oh wow. Yeah uh, I, apologies of, to, to those on listening.
2: Air. You just uh, said that on air.
0: Yeah, there's there's a lot a lot to say about this. Let me hit the news real quick. I see Rob's in the green room. Uh I thought it was interesting this week, not. I don't know how we would call this news as big in some ways, because uh, how AI is going to be regulated is a hot topic. Uh, they've promised to be good. Uh, we know that the promise to be good is very subjective. And uh, they want to form an industry organization. I've been saying all along, there needs to be something like I can. Here, some objective, separately funded. Like, I don't love the idea that they're funding it, for example. Uh, on the other hand, you don't love the idea of it being a government agency. So this is a pretty complicated problem. Even if you're talking to a one-eyed alien, Roni has some well, You need to bring up the one-eyed too. aliens.
2: You got to yeah. bring up. They were in Congress this week, right?
0: Aliens in Congress this week. Whistleblowers saying that we actually have dead aliens somewhere. Uh, it's possible... I don't think the president knows if that's the case, because otherwise Donald Trump would have told us. (laughs) Uh, Moving on, there's something, here's something really, really actually kind of cool in a weird way. Um, Sam Altman has a company called WorldCoin. And WorldCoin wants to scan your eyeballs using its proprietary orb and if you have your eyeball scanned which will in perpetuity uh prove that you are a human not ai um because not you will have a token because you eye. will have a token in your metamask browser uh, which is worth some money because your identity i guess has value so you get like 66 dollars in token in token, in tokens. Oh, so like we did I love issuing Bitcoin. tokens that are worth sixty six dollars. So it, that's it, it a subject. sudden way to make your business worth a hundred billion dollars.
2: Charlie, that World Coin proves that a lot of folks out in the West Coast and tech don't watch sci fi movies. The entire premise <laughs> is a bad seventies plot, probably made by Paramount or Universal, <laughs> United Artists. It has like Rod Steiger in it. Um, Who's the guy from? <laughs> dude, dude,
0: this is the first scene of Blade yeah. Runner.
2: No, no, what are <laughs> they doing? This is total insanity. And guess what? People are lining up outside the U.S. because there's this like lost in translation thing. They're like in all parts of Asia, whatever, and like all these people are lining up, giving their eyeball to this crazy Sam Worldcoin thing. I'm like, it's the scariest sci- sci- <laughs> sci-fi dystopian movie of all time. What in God's name are you doing? No. And by the way, I here's a here's a here's a prediction. Crypto will come back because Sam and WorldCoin have blessed it. So all these VCs are like, okay, crypto, no, AI, metaverse, crypto again, crypto AI. Metaverse. Well, actually,
0: Sequoia <laughs> like Sequoia is unwinding its crypto fund. Uh, that was also in the news this week. I did not hit it in the roundup because it doesn't seem really like my beat. Uh, but I thought it was interesting. I think it's a sign that people are smelling money elsewhere. And so it's the crypto world fund world. becomes the AI fund, and so forth.
2: But now Sam has brought it back. So every, I bet you every VC is having a meeting. Yeah, Sam, know that we don't know.
0: Yeah, I mean tokenization is a slightly different idea than cryptocurrency. It's got some similarities to it. it it's got limited. I mean, in a specialized application. Uh, you know, it can be very useful, but in this one, I'm a little like, "How is my identity being monetized? Is this better? Or am Are you I, giving I, them being your eyeball? Protected? Uh, it doesn't seem like protection. Are you going to do it? Are you going to give Sam your eyeball? Uh, I don't have any current plans, but who knows what will happen in the future? You know, I think it's
1: a. It, let me know if you guys if this is. a... You're uh, your
0: echoing, dude. Really bad.
1: Wow, I'm just in a bad in a bad scenario. Let me keep trying. Hold on. Keep at it. Keep talking.
0: All right, well, let's bring bring Robin because in any event, he would in, uh, have a lot of uh, insight into some of these topics because Rob is a guy who knows a lot about a lot, which is always what makes him such a fun person to talk to. Um, and I love the th- I mean, he's this is another guy who thinks really big. So I'm looking forward to talking to him about the project he's working on now.
1: Oh, let's try this spot. Is this any better or any worse?
0: Yes, that's way better.
1: Way better. Right. Way better. Sorry, too. For all the uh, gyrations, sometimes my, my crazy life of having to be in different spots around the planet. Um, I think what you guys were talking about, first of all, uh, Rodi pulled up a very esoteric actor. Like I
2: wonder if the younger generation is like, who
1: knows Rob Steiger? What is he talking about?
2: <laughs> Just Google the darn thing or go to chat GPT. It'll tell you. Right. Exactly. It'll I tell know tell sometimes I make a is-
0: reference like that, teaching... And I like, it's like 25 blank faces. Just like, right. Just I'm like, okay, second. so who here knows who Jackie Gleason is? Right. No one. No
2: noticed. Google, it, in one second, you have the answer. I, I mean, yeah. if you can't do that, you shouldn't be in
0: college. So That's Rob Tersek true. is in the room. Uh, Rob, great to see you. Thank you for coming back. Another repeat guest, uh, you know, another three times and you're going to get the uh, gold hoodie. It's good to see you all. How are you
3: all doing today? Good, Rob. How are you? I'm good. Ted, you well?
0: Yes, doing great good.
3: Glad I'm
1: traveling here. again, as you all know, because I've been, this This has been a a little more data challenge than my normal spot this week, but uh, all good. And it's nice to see you.
3: Um, right on. Hi, Ronnie. Is it Ronnie or Ronnie? Ronnie. Uh, Ronnie, great to meet you.
2: Good to meet you, Rob.
3: I'm a friend of Rio Kerry. Uh, so I was uh, kind of cheering on oh, cheering you on from awesome. the sidelines there as oh, okay. you were uh, yeah, reading that. Awesome.
2: That's cool. So, you know, Rio, that's great. You know, his yeah. dad's work too, his photography.
0: Yeah. So, Rob, I was, uh, <clears throat> as I was singing your many praises, and oh, for those of you listening, by the way, Rob, Rob and I have known each other since the 90s. Um, you know, so uh, it's like funny. 1890s? I was talking. The 1890s, yes, uh, I <laughs> Rob was working against Sony at the time, uh, and we were all trying to figure out how exactly um, entertainment was going to work in the interactive era. And, of course, we were very limited in those days by the two-wire twist and, and low-speed uh, modems. Uh, so much is different now. There's broadband in the home, and, uh, and of course, the games business has become a juggernaut. Did we anticipate, Rob, 30 years ago, the size that the game business really would be today? That's a
3: very good question. Uh, You know, at the time I was working on online games and I remember very clearly in the late 90s, everybody in the console games, including my colleagues at the PlayStation, were incredibly dismissive of online games. You know, at the time, it's easy to remember people were very dismissive of internet video or internet television, right? There are lots of smart people who would tell you why that would never happen and um but it seemed very clear to me if you connected games together you could get people away from playing by themselves and playing with other people it was hard uh, but there was a tremendous amount of resistance i think in general the game industry was very skeptical that there was going to be any kind of audience for online games
0: so as we were preparing for the panel um you started to tell me about uh your focus right now on building regional centers for spatial computing and building digital twins of cities in cooperation with local authorities and universities. And the first thing I thought when I read that was Rob is a really big thinker <laughs> uh, <that's-> <laughs> <laughs> and really ambitious. So t- tell us about this project, or, or maybe I'm just a glutton for
3: punishment because I can tell you trying to get state governments and universities and cities uh, to do anything together um, is is quite challenging uh, well here's the idea you yeah, know it became pretty clear during the pandemic that you could work from anywhere and I knew plenty of people who frankly took advantage of that to go to places like Taos uh, in New Mexico a place I happen to love great skiing it's a beautiful place oh and
0: I'm wearing I'm representing New Mexico yeah. today. right
3: on I'm sporting right
0: on. a New Mexico t-shirt
3: so I started thinking about that I was like gosh you know that um we have some insight into what the next big wave of uh, technological innovation is going to be um my belief it's a, it's going to be immersive 3D uh, I think there is a lot of evidence to suggest that even though it might take a while but it doesn't mean that those jobs have to be in California where it's very expensive to innovate you know like, like you know if you were starting a company I don't know if you would, would necessarily do it in in, in California um, certainly, there's a lot of talent here, but you're really swimming upstream in terms of cost. Most well, Very, of, uh, very competitive market for that talent as well. That's right. So you have to pay a lot. And, and then they end up paying a lot for housing. Right. So most of the money that goes into a startup goes into rent, either your office space or your employees rent, which just seems like an inefficient use of capital. Meanwhile, um, I noticed people were moving. A lot of people moved during the pandemic to other cities like Austin, Nashville and so on where they could live at like literally half the cost of living and have a perfectly fine lifestyle. And it, it occurred to me that there was a way, uh, an opportunity now to kind of uh, arbitrage opportunity across the country. And to do that, if you wanna do that, if you wanna create like a regional center of excellence, you have to get three things working together in um, in concert. It's not just a private sector challenge. You've gotta get the government to support it with, inter- with uh, constructive policies favorable policies and then you also have to get the universities to get in sync and this is this sounds obvious but
0: most universities don't think of themselves as vocational yeah community college now that i've been inside of a university for five years i can say the ability to get anything done other than basic instruction is extremely difficult and it has to come from the very highest levels because nobody works for anybody (laughs)
3: <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. And academic freedom means that professors can teach, you know, whatever they want. So you can't say like, you know, focus on this thing. That That is not an approach that'll work. But you can show people incentives. And I would say that generally people want to see their region be successful. Yes. So there's an, in, you know, it's not hard to get the meeting and get people to think about it. Um, organizing everyone around a project, that that takes a bit of effort. But I'm happy to say I'm making great headway. Finally, it's taken about eight months, uh, and now I'm starting to see these coalitions make some real progress. Eight months is not very long, my friend. No, that's true, and, the, and we're helped here because um, the Biden administration has been pumping money in infrastructure money into um, projects like this. And uh, what the federal government wants to see is this kind of coalition. They want to see that the public sector and the private sector are working together. They want to see local governments removing roadblocks, uh, you know, policies that are that deter innovation. They want to see the universities that they support. Remember, the federal government pumps a lot of money into higher education. They want to see that those universities are actually engaged and doing something in their communities and doing something to foster job creation. So we're helped by that because in a lot of places in the country, you have all those pieces. You've got the university, you've got uh, you know kind of green shoots, uh, startup companies happening, maybe one or two big industrial companies, um, and a government that you know clearly wants to create jobs. So now, is this?
0: Is what you're describing similar to what Orlando has been working on for the past three yeah. or four years? Orlando is a good example.
3: So Orlando is the home of three of the uh, four branches of the military where they have their simulation centers. Uh, so, um, yeah, Ronnie, Ronnie's n- nodding here because, of course, he knows this better than anybody on this call. Um, so, you know, when you have uh, when when the DOD sets up a research center, you're going to find private sector companies go there because they want to be in business. And then, you know, it seems quite natural that the local university would get interested in and perhaps be supportive. So that's an example. Um, you know, interestingly, though, it hasn't really galvanized in any way that I can detect. Uh, you know, those companies are there, but I haven't really seen Orlando leap to the forefront in any, uh, in any way. But maybe I'm missing something. Roni, what do you know about Orlando?
2: Yeah, so I, I agree with your thesis. The issue, because I've worked on like Florida mm-hmm. VC and stuff like that, built, built both my tech companies here and building some more now. Um, what you have in Boston, Austin, San Diego, and mostly in San Francisco, and you also have in like in Israel, are just clusters of early stage investors. That's what's missing in Florida. Mm. Um, you know, if, if you're if you're a couple kids and you have a professor, or something, you want to go start a company, and you're near Stanford, you just walk up and down Sand Hill Road, you're just going to bump into a VC. You know where the watering holes are. There's <laughs> yeah. angel investors everywhere. It's like trying to do a song in Nashville, right? In Florida. You could wander around like where is it where do i find the angel there are some hiding yeah. but most of the capital we raised from make magically if i had to go to the west coast go to boston i think we raised near zero from florida mm. and then we brought everyone here after we raised the capital and we did everything in florida but there was no supporting investing infrastructure so that's the problem in orlando that's the problem in many parts of the country and when they say they have capital it's like conservative late stage capital.
3: Yeah, it's like, true. That's true. San
2: Francisco, the Valley still has people. You could walk in, be 23, flip-flops, a short, have a crazy idea in a napkin, and walk out with a five, 10, 20 million dollar seed round. Still happens and go start the next Google or go start the next whatever. And I have friends who've done that. I've done that. And that's what makes it amazing that you could just be this crazy kid with an idea. And there are people that will bet on you. And, and you go outside that area. It's like super rare to find it. That's true. That's, that's true. Missing.
3: That's true. But, you know, the investors in Silicon Valley have also expressed frustration with the cost of innovation there. So they are open to investing in companies that are located elsewhere. Uh, so I guess you could say, you know, geography, it, it's not, you can't say geography doesn't matter, doesn't matter at all, but it's less of a factor. You know, it used to be, you couldn't be further away from your VCs than a, a, a short drive so that you could have lunch with them.
2: Robert, you're completely right. Like when we were building magically, every investor was like, move it out to the Bay Area. Yeah. Why Florida is like alligators and swamp. What are you doing building a company in Florida? (laughs) And it was very difficult, a hundred times harder to actually build the company here and to convince the Valley investors that we should be farther than a five minute drive from them. Right. Because if it's not a five minute drive from the office, it's just like, oh, that doesn't exist. You know, it's outside their window. If you want to go far away, like, ooh, you're like, in the North Bay or something, you know? Yeah. Or you're in Santa Clara. Oh my God, that's like that's like a million miles away, you know? Florida, that's like another galaxy.
1: Well, and and Rob, on, on this call with all these faces, there is one person who grew up in Orlando, Florida. Uh, oh. So that would be me. Uh, so I have a fairly intimate knowledge of multi-generational Orlando.
3: Has uh, it changed from- much in, 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 when you go back? Massively.
1: Well, yeah. now remember, It's changed much since I was a little kid, Mm -hmm. pre-Disney, right, into the first iteration of Disney World. And what I would sort of call out about this, which I think is an interesting perspective as why Orlando is giving this a shot, is Central Florida as a region has a very interesting, very different style of innovation culture, right? And that innovation culture is based on entertainment innovation, right, Mm -hmm. because that sort of where those people are and what they think and how they work. Roni, I imagine you probably felt a little bit of that drafting effect when you were in Florida, but it's a different style of what's going to make a company work, right? Um, so I think it's admirable uh, and interesting that places like Orlando, Austin, you know, uh, um, San Diego, places, like San Diego has a big game culture, right? Sony has a lot of innovation out of San Diego and, not and telecom,
3: Diego. tons That's of t- tons of mobile telecom in San Diego, right?
1: And yeah, Qualcomm is down in Qualcomm, San Diego, yeah. so there's a there's a cultural dynamic, and Orlando is one of those places that has a very interesting cultural dynamic, but not an early stage risk reward investor dynamic. Yeah. So how you change that culture is is kind of interesting and and kind of something to think about. But here's here's the question I would ask to you, Rob, because you're studying this. Um, when you talk about startups potentially breaking the time space continuum as it were and being able to connect virtually right via all these technology tools and data pipes so you don't have to be in the highest end real estate in the world and and generate all that cost dynamic of having that people around you physically do you feel it still works as well in the intimate stages of a startup where you need the scrum and and can you do it virtually? Are we at a stage? And this is just an open question because I actually don't know the answer to this. Do you need that physical intimacy to mm. be able to birth something into the world, or is I mean, that it helps, right? But I
3: don't think you have to absolutely have it. Uh, there's there's plenty of companies now that are distributed companies, um, and and uh, you know, in the crypto space, it's even more it's even more broadly dispersed, right? In the crypto space, people. Right. They don't necessarily even know who they're collaborating with or what country they're coming from. And they're really striving for that, right? They're saying, Hey, we want to get to a world where you don't approach um, business with those filters where it's like, Oh, I'm going to do business with these people because they look a certain way. They come from a certain zip code or they speak a certain language. And so they're, they're deliberately anonymizing in the, in the DAO space. I think that's a super cool idea. Is it going to be more successful? Who the heck knows? I mean, we're, we're talking about the future here. Um, I will tell you this, what's, quite interesting now is it's expensive to innovate in Austin. And yeah. I wouldn't move to Nashville if you asked me to. Uh, the places I think are interesting right now are Santa Fe in New Mexico. I'm a huge fan of Salt Lake City. Um, I'm a big fan of, of Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, these are, you know, kind of cities that got bypassed. Uh, you know, if you take, take for you instance, self. South Carolina, North Carolina, North Carolina Research Triangle has been a factor for 50 years. It's well established. Uh, South Carolina, not so much. What sets these places apart is that the industries that they have are the industries that are going to get digitized next. Most of the industries in those regions were not digital. Yeah, And it's really quite interesting. There's there's an awful lot of big industry where they still do things on paper, you know, where some, some guy with a hard hat has a clipboard. He's checking things off a list. It ought to get digitized. It's just that it's been a formidable challenge. The next well, it's company. interesting you
1: bring up North Carolina, right? Because yeah. Epic Games is based in North Carolina.
3: Yeah, that right? area is a powerhouse. But South Carolina, historically, you know, they South kind of Carolina, avoided yeah. tech because they figured they couldn't compete with North Carolina.
2: Yeah, but yeah. that's changing. You're really, right? Because Beeple has an amazing high-end digital studio he opened up in Charleston, South that's Carolina. That's right. Don't forget Bentonville, Arkansas.
3: Right.
2: There's there's an interesting startup culture there. Uh, the founder of Evernote is a friend of mine. He moved there and built his company there which raised a ton of money from Sequoia because Walmart's there, right? And there's all this exhaust around like one of the giant Fortune 10 companies. So you're right. There's still no investing culture in any of these cities. That's the problem. If you don't come there fully funded, you could just die very fast as a startup. So how do you solve that problem? Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, you
3: know, so here's what's been kind of interesting. Uh, when I visit one of these places, I have to start to make contact, you know, so I'll, I'll visit around, I'll go to meetups, I'll start to talk to people, I have this idea, I share my pitch with them, and people start to make introductions, oh, you should talk to so-and-so, and eventually I start to make contact with local companies. In every one of the places I've mentioned, there are local startup companies, and here's what's interesting, many of them haven't raised money, they're just growing out of revenue, so that's going to make you smaller, for sure, you're not going to accelerate as fast. And in some respects, the founders don't care about that because they just want to build a good business and they have a problem they want to solve. And they're not sure they want to bring in outside investors because that changes the dynamic and trajectory of the business. So I would say right now, you know, one of the big trends in the last 30 years has been the amount of capital you need to raise to start a company has been consistently going down. Part of that's because of open source software. Part of that's because of cloud. You know, you could start a company on a credit card today. Uh, and you don't necessarily have to have an office, so you can knock out an awful lot of costs. I'm not going to say that makes it describing easier. Describing
2: though, um, I would say companies with v- limited um, aspects of innovation, right? Like, like commercialization companies that use existing tech. I think it's really hard to build anything new like that. Um, hardware, something the yeah. yeah, hardware has gone yeah. at, at that level, and yeah, you're kind of fiddling on top of someone else's platform. So you're building like these smaller businesses that live on top of AWS Azure or something like that. But are those are those the big game changers, right? Or they're just small little businesses like starting an ice cream shop or something?
3: Well, it's an interesting question. It depends. First of all, you know, you can start a company that way and you can pivot elsewhere later, right? Remember Netflix started on AWS as well and ran on, on AWS for 10 years. So it's certainly possible to build a big business on someone else's platform. Um, but that said, um, you know, the companies I'm talking about, they're trying to solve a local problem. And this is where geography matters, Ted, I think. It's not so much about whether you have the team under the same roof or, you know, honestly, I'm not so sure it matters if you're in, in Silicon Valley. Uh, I think what's interesting is if you're close to customers. So when we start to digitize traditional businesses, think like mining, energy, uh, electricity generation, electricity uh, transmission, um, it's a really useful thing to be near your customer. Uh, If you're doing a wind farm, if you're modeling a wind farm, um, you kind of want to be near that wind farm. So this means that these companies by necessity have to be geographically dispersed and out in the wilderness, You know, I guess in the hinterlands, far from the innovation capitals, far from the the investor capitals, um, but necessarily close to their customer. At any rate, look, it's an interesting opportunity because these places have been uh, flown over for, for decades. And there's a lot of interesting opportunity there. And there's a very supportive uh, uh, culture around them in those cities. People are very welcoming uh, of any outside interest and any outside opportunity to foster the growth.
2: So Robert, your your thesis is interesting. It's like, instead of looking for the 100X, 1000X, which is the Valley goal, build a company worth a few million, 5 million, 20 million locally that maybe doesn't have to become a Google, but is just a nice company that's doing 5 million in revenue. And maybe that's it but it's a good local business. And that's a lot more stable, like thousands of those companies rather than one big Google. It's like a distribution of innovation.
3: Well, first of all, I think Google is gonna be Google. So I don't think anyone's gonna displace them anytime soon. But the kinds of companies I'm talking about are doing far better than five million a year. They're doing tens of millions a year. So there's a business to be had. Um, Here's a way to look at it, I think. you know, uh, Ronnie, the, the, the last 30 years, we've seen one sector after another get digitized and transformed. You know, most of the folks on this call have experienced that with media, entertainment, advertising, of course, right? And, and it doesn't end. Like, we're going through another round of that right now. So once you digitize it, there's always room to kind of like remix it again and again. Um, but there are a bunch of industries that have been very resilient, I guess, resistant to that sort of digitization. Uh, certainly the global supply chain, which is $40 trillion of activity. Uh, You know, for years, people have been attempting to digitize one piece or another, but the supply chain itself is still kind of stubbornly analog, uh, and it still stubbornly runs on paper. And frankly, they have problems just getting their data into standardized formats. So there's tons of opportunity there. I mean, you could look at it as a giant problem, but it's a problem to be solved. uh, And that can spell opportunity. The point I'm making is that I think there are really large-scale business challenges, and the company that solves those challenges could be worth a lot. I'll just give you one example. So uh, I'm quite interested in um, using 3D to create replicas of the real world, what they call in industry digital twins, uh, what they call, you know, what Charlie would call the metaverse. Uh, You know, there's a kind of industrial aspect of that. And actually, NVIDIA uses the term industrial metaverse to describe it. I'm not sure that's omniverse. Yeah, that's right. I'm not sure that's such a great term, the industrial metaverse, because it sounds sort of dorky. Uh, it's actually a super fascinating problem because you're talking about creating a high-fidelity replica of the real world. That's incredibly useful if you're trying to plan um, energy grids. It's incredibly useful if you're trying to reroute trucks in an efficient way. Uh, it's useful for any kind of extractive industries. So think oil and mining and so forth. And, it's, and, and that is growing. The use of 3D technology to simulate those places is growing. And the re- simple reason is, is it's expensive to build in the real world. There's increasing number of uh, restrictions on your ability to do that. There's environmental impact and so forth. So it makes a heck of a lot of sense to build a high fidelity digital model and then start to run simulations in that digital model. And you can start to then thereby figure out like what the best approach might be. Uh, One mining company said to me, look, to find a mine, we have to drill drill 10 holes. They cost a million dollars each. We devastate the environment. If you can help us narrow that down to five holes, we're going to save half the cost that pays for the project right there. I mean, it's... Pretty simple stuff, right, at that level. I wouldn't say it's a simple challenge to solve because the, the world's a complex place and modeling it is a complex undertaking. Um, now, to do that, there are a lot of tools available, right? So you don't need to build 3D tools, those exist. 3D engines exist. Um, this, the cloud that you might run this in, that already exists. So I think running, to return to your question, here you're talking about intelligently leveraging existing infrastructure and innovating on top of it, but in a field that Previously has been really resistant to any kind of innovation. That's a that's a pretty interesting opportunity.
1: So, so in fact, here's a, here's uh, the
0: question. Here's content.
1: a question for you that relates to what you're talking about. Kind of the flip side of the equation, right? Do you think about the fragility of these companies that are built on effectively software layers that use the internet's picks and shovels, the data silos, the the real money makers of this business? And mm-hmm. then there's obviously many, many companies, kind of the ones you're referring to, that can live all over this distributed world and try and solve and tackle problems by effectively Mm -hmm. building a software layer, right? I think about Mm -hmm. the interdependency of all those and how fragile those businesses are and how quickly they can be usurped by a a slightly better use case or a better sort of build of a similar software package. Mm -hmm. Does that relate to your thesis a little bit about
3: you yeah, know, no. know, what- it's, it's kind of related to what Ronnie was saying, right? If you're not building a company from the ground up and you, if you don't yeah. control your own infrastructure, then you're dependent on somebody else's. And, you know, that might look like fragility to you, but it might look like agility to someone else. That might mean that that company's it's- nimble, right? So if you're using containers, you're not dependent on AWS. You can pull your containers out and stick them in Azure if you wish, and you can do that in an afternoon. Uh, so I think you, know, you can be intelligent about how you build a build a business and avoid those kinds of dependencies. But yeah, it's a it's a legitimate issue. I mean, it's sort of like a, a software architecture. Well, that's a good strategy. thesis that
1: it can cut both ways. That 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 fragility can also be the ability to be. This is the thing.
3: Like never before awesome. in history could you start a company with a credit card, a, you know, like a big data company. Today you can. Do you want to keep it there forever? Do you you know, no, maybe not? You know, eventually you probably want to migrate off of that solution. Interesting but,
2: Robert, well, you're postulating, first of all, it's like the gargoyles from Snow Crash, right? I I could totally see in all these tier one, tier two, and three cities, right? I've got my like scanning pack. I've got an AWS or Azure or Google Google Cloud. And I I do this deep scanning and building a digital twin to where Microsoft and Google, it's not worth their time. You do it and you're like a middle person between them and and an end user, right? And you just do it really well. So you're kind of this like middle subcontractor in the supply chain of like the digital world. Mm -hmm. I actually think that's a business and you could build something because to get to that fine detail that we want in the digital twin of the world, it's not just throwing a satellite overhead or a drone. Mm-hmm. There's a lot to tool and to finesse. Like if you want to do a digital twin of an Exxon fa- you know, oil refinery or something. Well,
3: you know this better than everybody because of Magic Leap. It's like, you can do a certain amount with the satellite data and you can get pretty close, but the, if the fit isn't exact, then it's not that useful. So it's that last 10% of fine fitting. you know. So you got millimeter level precision in the model in the real world, that's gonna require feet on the street.
2: Oh, great, there's a Northwest company called, I think called Argyle, um, and they're doing just that. They're actually making super exact digital twin fits between the, the a physical building for construction. And then you take the CAD cam model and it like really joins together at that like millimeter type level. And you need that, right? You can't be within a foot, right? Like the Google map might get you within a foot, but they're taking you down to the millimeter. And now you can use on a construction site for surveying, So I think you're right about this opportunity space for local entrepreneurs. It's very interesting. It needs some local small investment, but it's not massive capital. Like you are right, you can use a lot of existing tools. Ted, I think what makes them a little more stable is it's unattractive for the big guys. It's not super high margin, right? Right. You're gonna make okay margin. It's labor intensive a little bit. So it's just a business the big ones leave alone, which means small medium can capture it, do tens of millions in revenue, but not the kind of margins that Google or Microsoft look for. But that's fine, right? That creates mm-hmm. a lot of opportunity. I, I think Robert's correct on this.
3: Yeah. So when you think about the rollout of um, of good AR headsets, which still may be a few years out, right? You know, they they get better every year, and they suck less every year, and so eventually they're going to get you know cheap enough and good enough. But that might be a few years out. The question i'm always wondering about is who's making the content who's making the applications who's making the stuff useful right uh the cost look at metas spent in the last 18 months has spent 20 billion dollars on reality labs we thought they slashed their spending on the metaverse nah pedal to the metal zucks going for it right god bless him i mean he's a guy we can criticize him all day long but the fact is like the fact that facebook or meta is is investing at that Level it forces everybody else in the industry to to invest. Robert Matthew level.
2: Ball responded to my inquiry. I, I estimated forty to sixty billion since the inception of their acquisition of Oculus. Mm-hmm. His calculations are close to sixty billion.
3: Sixty,
0: all yeah, all
2: in. Twenty just in the last year plus. Yeah, that's crazy money.
3: It's crazy money, and what's it giving? Three you know? billion
2: over a decade at magically. 60 billion over a decade is is pretty hardcore. That's it's insane,
3: right? Now he's going to have, you know, incremental improvement in hardware to your point. That's expensive and that's hard to do and and thank goodness he is, right? Cuz he's forcing Apple and Samsung and everyone else to step up. So that's good. Um on the software side though, the results have been pretty pathetic. If you took 40 billion dollars and thought about that in terms of the game industry, you know, what Charlie was saying a minute ago, you can make an awesome online game for $500 million. I mean, like a truly great online game at, at the level of like Fortnite. Zuck could have built 20 Fortnites, which candidly would have transformed Facebook into a completely different kind of business um, w- without the investment in the headset. Here's the thing I'm thinking about like, so while Silicon Valley companies are duking it out over who's gonna own the hardware and what's the future of the smartphone or the thing that comes after the smartphone, this face computer that we're gonna have in the, in the future, My thing is there's a lot of opportunity for companies right now to be laying down the groundwork for businesses that will take advantage of those headsets when they arrive. So there's a bit of a foot race, right? So say sometime in the next five years, we're going to have workable AR gear. And my thinking isn't so much about consumer. I'm I'm not worried about consumer because candidly, there's a ton of companies in California focused on consumer entertainment. I'm more interested in industrial uses. I think, first of all, the very good use cases are going to come from industry. And that's how we're going to digitize these old dusty, you know, digging in the ground kind of industries that we've had for hundreds of years. Uh, that's, AR is going to be the way that you make that very useful, that data.
2: I agree and slightly disagree. So one, I think you actually have some workable gear right now for industry. Yeah. Um, the the ML2, the HTC, Vive Pro, there, there's a couple of units that are already good enough for industrial use, like at some scale. Well, but um, yeah, I think the interesting instance, thing is these companies that you're, yeah. <laughs> The companies that you're talking about, um, they need to be, they have to last 10 years. They need to be ramen companies. They need to be really low burn rate, small yeah. teams doing what you said. So they survive long enough for the market yeah. to explode. That's, that's the trick.
3: But but that's the kind of company I'm talking about, right? So they're, right now there are 50 people doing 10 million bucks a year, 12 million bucks a year. Growing, growing nicely, you know, and, and actually not limited to a region because now they're kind of expanding to other cities. They're, they're getting their expertise. If they have a data asset, they're building it up and they're going to start to find a way to defend around that and so forth. Um, probably mainly is a, a deep catalog of customers and use cases so that they can continue to attract business in a particular sector. I guess if you're listening to this show, that's that's what I'm identifying as an opportunity is like right now is a very good time to get started in a low burn way with a local industry that could use some help digitizing. And what you want to aim for is to bring a digital twin or a digital model to that physical entity, whatever that might be, uh, you know, a factory or an airport or a mine.
2: Robert, I think you're right. Any investor, small entrepreneur wanting to get into this, but like we, we call metaverse or uh, I think of as the X-verse or the spatial internet, you're calling digital twinning. I completely agree with you, actually. I think you've laid out a roadmap which is the way forward, um, not to burn out too fast, to stay low and small, like you said, I I
0: completely agree with your thesis.
3: That's cool, thank you. I feel like I just won Shark Tank.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Rob, does your um, initiative have a name? Probably the first thing we should have asked you. Uh,
3: I I haven't named it yet. I haven't actually talked about this publicly. This is the very first time I've talked in public about it. And this fall, I'm gonna be telling a little more about it. And that's because I have two projects that are about to roll out in a public way. So it's been a little bit um, under the wraps. Uh, So watch the space. In September, I'm going to start to talk more about that.
0: Thanks again for coming on the show. This is all the time we have. Um, uh, Again, great, great to see you. And uh, really appreciate your time and your insight and your friendship. Uh, Have a great weekend, everybody. And we'll see you next Friday.